0: Welcome to The Lost Debate, show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. Today, we're gonna to talk about the suburbs. And uh, I have a wonderful guest. Uh, as soon as I saw this book, um, I asked our producer to reach out to Benjamin Harold, who wrote this book called Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. And I love this book because it touches on so much of what we have been discussing for years on this podcast, which is the American dream, what families want. The history from the turn of last century to today and how suburbs have evolved, how people's expectations have evolved, how the demographics have evolved. All of these are items I know we'll touch on. And I think what I love about this book is, uh, you know, I used to run a seminar on New York City history. There's like no end to the amount of urban historians we have in this country. There is a rich and amazing history of these just titanic figures like Robert Caro, who've written about why cities are the way they are but we don't really talk enough about suburbs and we don't even acknowledge that suburbs have a history. And Benjamin, Ben, has done such a tremendous job here. Ben, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Let's talk about the sort of structure of this book first. So you decided, instead of just writing a sort of linear history, you took a different approach where you followed a series of families and communities. Talk a little bit about that and how you chose those families and communities.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, I, you know, I think I tried to approach this story from two angles. So one, I really want readers to see and understand that there is this big common cycle of racialized development and decline that really functions almost like a Ponzi scheme that is really sweeping through and shaping the the fate and the trajectory of suburban areas all over the country. And so it's like trying to on one hand take this really big picture view of like this this pattern that's unfolding all around us that we often just remain oblivious to we don't see and trying to shine a light on that and make it apparent. And then from the other side, really coming at it from the lens and stories of five, you know, really kind of typical everyday suburban families who are kind of caught up in trying to navigate and deal with this cycle and its fallout in their communities. So I actually started with the communities because what I what I realized pretty early on is that this cycle uh, that I, you know, describe in the book, it's really hard to see in a single community at a single point in time because this pattern of development and decline in suburbia really plays out across generations and it plays out across large metropolitan areas. And so the five communities kind of trace that arc from beginning to end. So on one hand, you know, on one end of the spectrum, we have uh, Lucas, Texas, which is an exurban community like 30, 40 miles north of Dallas, really kind of still just going up, still very exclusive, still very exclusionary, um, has uh, you know, a kind of a very affluent, uh, predominantly white population. Um, and an exclusionary zoning code to keep it that way. And then go from there to the Atlanta suburbs to Gwinnett County, which is an older kind of 2nd ring suburb, uh, set of suburbs outside of Atlanta, follow an African-American middle-class family um, who lived there, kind of thought they were buying into the suburban dream outside of Atlanta. Then to Evanston, Illinois, which is this like super progressive college town north of Chicago, where they've been trying to make integration work in suburbia for 50 years my hometown, which is actually an aging, really struggling, inner-ring suburban community just east of Pittsburgh, and then Compton, California, which we don't even think of as a suburb anymore. But this whole cycle played out there in the middle of the 20th century, and then the, the bottom really fell out. And so that should be a blinking red warning light for the rest of America. And every each of these other four communities, you can kind of see where they are in their stage by looking at where they are relative to, to Compton's progression.
0: Now, you start the book with your community, you mentioned Penn Hills, outside of Pittsburgh. And how at some point in the 2000s, you learned that your charming little suburban community you grew up in was $174 million in debt Uh, set the stage for us about how that is even possible.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Penn Hills in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. And it was really, you know, it is kind of a classic post-war suburb. It had been rolling farmlands and coal mines and, you know, pretty empty right up until, uh, you know, the the, the end of World War II. And then there was this massive federally subsidized development. And so you saw, you know, subdivisions and single-family homes just start to proliferate there very quickly. So the population doubled in a decade, then doubled again over the next decade. And it became this kind of classic post-war American suburb. And so when I grew up there, like it was still working very well for families like mine. Like it was still 85, 90 percent white, um, almost uniformly middle class. And we got a great deal. You know, we got uh, cheap mortgage loans, massive tax breaks, mostly new infrastructure and a public school system that really, really worked well for families like mine. And so, you know, I kind of went through and I graduated high school in 1994 and I left and I didn't really look back. I didn't really think much about the suburbs. I thought the real world was somewhere else. I wanted to go out and find it. But it was twenty fifteen when these headlines started coming out of Penn Hill. So twenty years later, a generation after I left, what we saw was this like this school system, which is really only like thirty five hundred kids, had run up this massive debt that was a combination of like really just atrocious decision-making around planning to build two new schools, but it was kind of symptomatic of this deeper rot within the community of saying, we're you know, we're just not really going to acknowledge reality. It's like this constant magical thinking that someone else will pay for it later, someone else will pay for it later. And eventually that kind of caught up. And so when I started seeing these headlines, like the ripple effects were really devastating. So you were seeing teachers getting laid off. You were seeing uh, programs getting slashed, you know, opportunities getting cut. And property taxes were going up, home values were stagnating. So it was like all of a sudden that classic suburban dream was like turning on itself and becoming like just sucking resources and optimism out of the community. And that overlaid this demographic shift. So the school district had been 72% white when I graduated, 63% black when all of these bad news started coming out. And so it became really apparent that this Ponzi scheme dynamic, you know, what happened the benefits of suburbia go to those first few generations of families. And the cost of that is pushed off onto future generations, that race is really overlaid on top of that. So in my case, in Penn Hill's case, what you see, you know, by and large is that white families benefiting and then black families who come later having to pay for it.
0: Yeah. And let's underscore that. that You're clear that the picture that our audience may have of this sort of morning in America, Reagan ad of white families in the suburbs is no longer true. So give us the sort of national trends here.
1: Yeah, the um, demographic changes uh, sweeping through suburbia, I think, are one of really the most like overlooked stories of the last 20 years. As so we see it in kind of bits and pieces, but like trying to understand the scale and scope of this, we've been really bad at that. I think largely because we still hold on to these myths about what suburbia is and who it's for. Um, but, you know, if you look at the, the big picture trends, you know, in the span of just like three decades, suburbia went from 79% white to 55% white, and that's, you know, dropping fast. Inside suburban public schools, white kids are already a minority. So that's part of what we see kind of driving this these tensions and conflicts we're seeing all of a sudden across suburbia is that the demographic changes are are just going so fast. And it challenges our notions of who this community is for, what it's all about, what it's supposed to look like, what values, history, culture, it's supposed to reflect. And so, you know, historically, there's been kind of an escape route for that. So, like, when my family started to experience those pressures and penthouse of demographic change, aging infrastructure, sewage bills starting to go up because they hadn't taken care of the sewer system forever, you know, instead of staying and reinvesting and, you know, trying to make that community work better, we left. And it was kind of incentivized for us to leave. It was easy for us to leave. It was a rational decision in the small picture to go out to a newer community where that, like, new deal was starting uh, all over again. But part of what happens is that, you know, we have also, we're running out of our ability to just keep building out further and further and further, partly because of the housing market and land use patterns, environmental reasons, commute times. Like There's a whole host of factors, but we can't, we're we like, we've, we're running up against the limits of the ability to just keep running away from the problems we leave behind. And that's part of what's really driving all of this tension and conflict we're seeing in suburbia right now.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. So the the African-American families and other families of color that are moving into the suburbs are probably moving from the cities mostly sometimes and the white families where are they going is this are they part of the reurbanization? like you know because what's happening to my eyes at least is the cities used to be this place that people are running away from now in many cases they're running towards the cities and living in a city is probably more palatable and exciting and attractive to families than it used to be
1: yeah, I think there's a couple of things happening, and it's a great question. So, you know, we tend to really think of white flight still as white flight out of the cities into the suburbs in the 60s and 70s. And that's, you know, it was very devastating. The, the kind of disinvestment and debt and disrepair that followed that was really profound. But what we haven't quite recognized and haven't quite grappled with yet is that we've also seen waves of white flight out of older suburbs either two newer suburbs further out, you know, including now into the far exurban communities, and then also increasingly back into cities with particularly the, you know, youngest, highest educated, you know, family, white or more affluent families coming back into cities. And we see gentrification of places like Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Chicago, you know, really profound ways. It's having a really significant impact. And there's also this underlying thing of like, where the white population in this country is just declining, where aging birth rates are going down, like as the white population declines, the non-white population is still growing pretty dramatically. And so when you put all of those factors together, what you see is like these kind of both push and pull forces leading families of color out into suburbia, but still often coming out with this idea of, okay, well, I can find the good life here. I can find, you know, a good school system, safe streets, nice neighborhoods. And sometimes that works and sometimes it works for maybe even a generation or so, but there's often all these kind of like small micro interactions that happen largely with the school systems where it's like, Hey, this community isn't really quite working for me the way it worked for other people. My kid isn't really being respected or treated well, often being punished unfairly. You know, there's, they're not allowed to wear braids to school or like these like moments that come up that kind of signify that you're not welcome there. And then the economic kind of hit comes on top of that where it's like, oh wait, all of a sudden we have to pay for all of this aging infrastructure. The tax base has started to dwindle because the families with the most means have left and you know capital and businesses have followed. So it becomes this really, really tough spiral or vortex. It becomes very hard for a community to get out of.
0: Yeah. And taking a step back, you know, one might be wondering, well, why were the suburbs as white as they are? So bring us back to the post-war period. What were the policies and policies, cultural forces, trends that brought people to the suburbs, and why were the suburbs so homogenous?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's important for us to really remember two things about particularly America's post-war suburbs, starting in the late 30s and then especially in the 40s and into the 50s, 60s. So one, they were racially and economically exclusionary by design, often in policy and in statute. And, uh, you know, in some ways kind of baked into the federal government's policies around this in terms of how mortgage loans were guaranteed. So we talk a lot about redlining in terms of the lack of investment that went into poor and predominantly African-American communities. And that's obviously a huge problem. But the flip side of that is that there was greenlining. And those were the communities that were newest all single family homes, mostly white, uniformly middle class that's the places that the federal government signaled to banks, developers, other federal agencies. Those were the places that were safe for investment. And they were only safe for investment if they remained all white and uniformly middle class. So we had these kind of generations of communities that grew up by design to work for one group of families, one group of families racially and economically, but also it's for young families with kids. And that was really the design of that. And so, you know, part of what becomes so challenging is that the communities also built up almost overnight to reflect the needs and desires and priorities and wishes of those young middle class white families. And so it's all single family homes, schools and shopping. But you know, you don't have this kind of you know diversity of you know mixed income housing. There's often like a you know not a, a commercial tax base, all of these kind of problems and all of that infrastructure, roads, sewers, schools, streetlights, sidewalks, kind of got built overnight. And so that the problem of that becomes Down the road, 30, 40 years after a community is first built up in that way, all of that stuff needs repair at the same time. And we haven't been budgeting for it. We haven't been saving in it. We haven't been investing in it. And so when the bill comes, it's really significant. And so again, it makes sense for the families who can to leave. But what it means is you know who's left behind or who comes in after ends up stuck with not only getting that same generous deal, but essentially on the hook uh, for paying for opportunities someone else already extracted.
0: And, you know, each one of these suburbs that you profile tells its own story. And I just want to pick a few of them to dive into. Uh, One is Lovejoy, Texas. And you you describe a school system, basically, I mean, this is just to my ears, almost trying to operate like a business, trying to pull people into their system, saying, how do we attract people who want to either live here or cross district lines and feed into our system? What did they try and, and has it worked? Uh, like, Because I was left after that chapter thinking, oh, this isn't a straightforward story.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. And yes, Lovejoy ISD serves uh, parts of three or four different communities north of Dallas. And the two biggest are Lucas and Fairview. And they're kind of, you know, as recently as the 1990s, they were pretty open country, you know, ranch land pasture. You'll see, if you drive around there still, you'll see Longhorn cattle kind of grazing, grazing along the side of the road and right next to these subdivisions full of 5,000 square foot mansions. So it's this far ex-urban community that has started really developing in the early 2000s. And, you know, it's just starting to build out now. And so when I first started reporting there, one of the first things that I did was go on a tour of a high school. And so this woman kind of met me there and we're going through the tour and it's this big, beautiful building. It's like there's an engineering wing on one side and the visual arts wing on the other side. And just, you know, a really impressive place where you'd want to send your kids. But I had done some research beforehand, and I knew that the demographics of Lovejoy ISD were almost totally different from the demographics of its neighboring communities. So Collin County is one of the most diverse places in, the, in America and one of the fastest changing places in America. But Lovejoy ISD, you know, as recently as 2019, was still 75% white, less than 3% poor, only a handful of kids still learning English. So going on this tour of the high school, and I, I bring this up, I said, you know, I noticed that your demographics are really different from neighboring districts. Why do you think that is? And the woman looked at me and she said, septic tanks. And I was like, what on earth are you talking about? So she kind of broke it down and it all came down to the local zoning code. So the towns, Lucas and Fairview in particular, had really said, "Okay, we're going to take this 17 square mile, you know, patch of land that feeds into Lovejoy schools and we're going to make it almost entirely residential. It's a 97 percent residential tax base and then we're also going to stipulate that all of the homes built in that 17 square miles have to be on at least an acre and in many cases 1.5 to 2.5 acres so you have really large lots with really large homes and then the third criterion that they baked into the zoning code was that there wouldn't be any sewers any public sewers so every you know every house has to has its own private sewage treatment plant its own septic system And so the net effect of that, and this is what they're telling me on the tour as I'm going through, like almost kind of like using it as a selling point, the net effect is that not a single child in that school district lives in an apartment. And so you see that it's really, again, to this question of why is suburbia historically white and affluent? There are still suburban communities that are still finding ways to use these kind of technologies of exclusion to make, you know, kind of filter out certain people and families and populations they don't want in. And so Lovejoy was kind of really serving that. But the problem with that model is is that it's not sustainable long-term, especially when you're in a community in a conservative, generally conservative place like this part of North Dallas, where folks don't want to pay high taxes. They don't want to keep taxes as low as possible. And so what you see was a community that is really like pretty early on kind of caught in this conundrum of saying like the only way we're really going to be able to sustain services and keep things up to date and new is if we either raise taxes or if we increase density and bring in more types of families. And the families that live there are like, no, absolutely not. I didn't pay a million dollars to live here so that I could, you know, send my kids to schools with children who live in apartments, (laughs) you know? And so there's this tension. And so they try and resolve that tension and are successful for several years by, you know, inviting kids who don't live there, families who don't live inside Lovejoy ISD to pay tuition to go to the public schools there. And so they're like making a million dollars a year, kind of filling in budget gaps by being able to do that. But even then, you know, you can see this tension around needing to remain exclusive because that's what families want and that's what keeps home values high versus needing to grow in order to have the revenue to keep a community new and vibrant and, and updated. Even with this program where they're attracting families to pay tuition in order to kind of fill in their budget gaps, they're not letting everyone in. So you can't just say, hey, I want to pay $11,000 a year to send my kids to Lovejoy ISD, sign me up. They'll go through this filtering process. And the way the principal, the superintendent described it to me was like very subjective. It's like, well, if we think you might make things harder for other kids, we're not going to take you. If you come with baggage, we're not going to take you. If you know you've done some things that we're not comfortable with, we're not going to take you. None of this is written down. It's all of this subjective filtering.
0: I mean, given that this is Texas, I can imagine there's probably a few uh, left tackles who make it through that uh, process as well um, mm. from neighboring uh, neighboring communities. But that's incredible. And for what I remember, they commissioned this study basically trying to figure out how can we sustain and grow our school system to improve it. And they basically did an aerial study where they tried to determine, okay, how many more people can move into this district.
1: It became this really, for me, this really fascinating case study of like just how far we are still willing to go to try to separate and exclude and maintain these kind of exclusive communities. Because again, this is a very small area. It's a very small school district. And so historically, Lovejoy ISD have been so small that they didn't even have their own middle and high school. Kids would go to Lovejoy Elementary School and then go to neighboring Allen for high school. And so Allen is like the prototypical Dallas football powerhouse. You know, the guy's where Kyler Murray went and they won multiple state titles and it got really big. And so they had this incredible talent base, but that meant it also got very diverse. And so the families in Lovejoy were like, hey, we're not really sure we want our kids to go there to this 5,000 student high school that is one of the most diverse in the country. We're not really sure we're comfortable with that. It's too big. We're not sure what kind of families are going to be there. All of these things. But again, they don't have the tax base or historically didn't have the tax base to say, okay, we're going to build our own high school for our own kids. There's just not enough families and not enough businesses in that 17 square miles. And so eventually, as Alan starts changing faster and faster and faster, families get more and more upset. And it becomes this thing, it's like it it exerts pressure on like the, the community's really like reason for being. So you would see realtors, they're up, like, up in arms. This is early 2000s. They're up in arms because they're trying to sell these million-dollar homes, and families are saying, okay, well, what's the school's like is their first question. And they're like, well, Lovejoy's great, but they have to go to Allen for high school, and this is 5,000 kids, and it's super diverse and all that. So it became this problem that didn't work with the community's vision of itself. And so what they essentially decided to do was to secede. So they said we're going to pull our kids back from Allen, and we're going to take out 120 million dollars in debt to build new schools. And so they commissioned a study to say, okay, is this? Do we are going to have enough families and kids to do this? Will we have? Will those families remain affluent enough? And they, you know, did census projections and aerial photography and interviewed realtors and you know all of this stuff. And they said, okay, we think it can work for a generation, and it did for a generation but what we see is like very quickly it only took 15 20 years for all of a sudden these economic pressures again uh, you know deriving from this tension between wanting to remain exclusive and needing to grow that just like hit the community super hard right around 2020 where they're all of a sudden facing you know a small district, facing million dollar operating deficits having to close schools having to charge for bus service you know like all of these things so it's just not a sustainable model and they were told that and they did it anyway
0: yeah, and and they're resisting the obvious solutions, right? Which is increased density, right. right? That's how you get there. Like, based on what you're saying, I imagine there are a lot of families, if you gave them a, a lower cost option, would move there in a heartbeat. And this is how much people don't want that, that they're willing to bankrupt their own districts
1: in Syria yeah. and areas. you know and it's part of why, like Lovejoy and the story of North Dallas became so significant for me is it's a it's a real contemporary crystallization of the mindset. That so much of post-war suburbia is built on. So, you know, I was following a white family there named the Beckers, uh, middle class, aff- you know, upper middle class, uh, affluent, uh, white family, conservative, Christian. They were bankruptcy consultants working on the Enron disaster together. So, you know, like that was kind of their origin story. And so they end up there and they feel like, OK, we have finally found this kind of suburban community that gives us what we wanted, what we've always wanted. It feels like our own small town Texas upbringing. And so, you know, I'm, I followed them along and they were great. They were like just incredibly generous about sharing their lives and sharing their perspectives with me. And so that first fall that they, um, the Beckers had moved into Lovejoy, um, they were going to the homecoming football game and they were going to meet up with a bunch of other new Lovejoy families before dinner beforehand. So I kind of tag along and I'm sitting there with them. And, you know, we just started talking about all of these issues and, you know, about this kind of zoning code, you know, these, these kind of issues in the zoning code. And they were very, like all of the families were very, these are all white families, all very clear of like, nope, that's where we draw the line. Like, yes, maybe it would bring in more revenue, but it would create so many problems to bring in those types of families. It would dilute the quality of what we have here so much that it wouldn't be worth it. And one, you know, one of the, the gentlemen who was at dinner said to me very directly, he said, don't think for a second that if Lovejoy School started to tank, I won't go find a better district somewhere else. And that's that mindset of like, we will take it for as long as it works for us the way we want it to. We won't think about what comes next. And when it's no longer working for us, we'll leave. And that is really the heart of this kind of disillusionment that the book talks about.
0: Yeah. I mean, this gets to a question around why suburbs don't get the sort of treatment that I started with, right? It's because I think city city folk like me don't respect them. Right, we look at it and we're like, ah, you're gonna leave. Like you say, you know, you you want me to take your community seriously, but then you say things like, "I'll leave if it get wor- gets worse." Which of course cities deal with that too. But I think there's like this this sort of artificialness that clouds suburbs that I don't like. I think, and and I'm not saying this is a correct position. I think this is what people say to themselves when they look down upon the suburbs. Right. In addition to the sort of lifestyle changes that are associated with moving to a suburb.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was part of my story with this as well. So after I left Penn Hills outside of Pittsburgh in 1994, it was like, I'm never coming back here. Like I wanted to go out and see the world. I went to school, went to graduate school, became a journalist. And even in becoming an education journalist, I was like very focused on like, you know, it's not hard once you start looking at America's public education system. You see the gaps between America's promises and its realities really clearly. And so, like, I'm hardly the first to say I want to understand where the source of those gaps are. And we go to cities and we go to rural areas. And that's where we think things are really happening because we've been so, like, trained, especially those of us like me who grew up in suburbia. We're really trained to not scrutinize ourselves, our own communities. And so it really took this, like, dramatic, dramatic kind of. Collapse or near collapse in Penn Hills for me to be like, wait, what the heck is happening here? Because this does not fit with my image and my stereotype, my memory of this place. And so, part of like the you know the idea of being disillusioned with this is like the experience that families and particularly families of color have going into suburbia and getting this raw deal. But part of the disillusionment is also like us as you know, people who think about America and its future shedding our own illusions about what suburbia is and why it matters or doesn't matter so that we can see what's actually really happening. And what's happening is we have these incredibly vibrant, dynamic, diverse communities that are not set up to be di- dynamic, diverse, and vibrant. And so there's this real structural kind of conflict that families are dealing with all over the country, and we just haven't had the language or the framework to really make sense of it. Yeah, what's
0: amazing to me is Gen X and, and millennials, right? So, your generation, my generation, so many of the most successful people in in American life, including in the arts, come from suburbs. There are exceptions for sure. There are people who've written about the suburbs and make them part of their identity, but it doesn't show up as explicitly as, like, you know, like somebody like I was born in Brooklyn, raised in Staten Island. You know, somebody comes from Manhattan, like Lena Dunham or something. Like, it's like, it, it's su- it's such a badge of honor. People talk about it. Or if you're somebody who comes from rural places, like you know Donna Tart coming from you know the Mississippi Delta or something, we have this sort of uh, this culture and this sort of mystique around the city and around the country. But nobody's really reclaimed the suburbs quite yet in a robust way to say, all right, this is America, and this is actually the post Reaganite America. The suburbs, they're lurking in the background as actually like a, a huge force in American cultural life.
1: Very much so. And I think part of it, again, is like we we trick ourselves. Like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a hip-hop fan, right? And so, you know, I love uh, 80s, 90s New York hip-hop, but a lot of the best came from Mount Vernon, which is a right. suburban area, you know what right. I mean? And like, same in West Coast. Like, you know, uh, one of the communities featured in the book is Compton. And we kind of have this idea of Compton as this gritty inner-city dystopia with all of stuff, and it certainly had lots of problems. But Compton is a suburban community it's a bedroom suburb of downtown Los Angeles. Even in Gwinnett, like if you look at outside of Atlanta, like some of the biggest kind of cultural forces like Quavo comes from Gwinnett County, you know, from Migos. So there's like, we don't talk about it. We don't call attention to it because it's so counter to our notions of what's real and authentic and what matters and what's interesting. But if you actually just look at the facts of it, like some of the most interesting dynamic places in America are places like, you know, Compton, for example.
0: Yeah, you know, even where I came from, Staten Island, right, Wu-Tang. Staten Island's kind of quasi suburban, although where Wu Tang came from, I don't think like you know I come from the North Shore, which is the more dense, like basically the North Shore. Of Staten Island's more like Brooklyn, the South Shore is more like New Jersey, but there is an element of Staten Island that has it's like a blend of suburban and urban culture. You have this chapter that really stood out to me called "Liberals versus Progressives." It's about Evanston, Illinois. So, staying on the school topic because I think schools. I think schools and suburbs are inextricably linked. Like, I I think, of course, there are issues of public safety that draw people to suburbs, but I think, like, the biggest magnet is housing and schools. Like, those are the the two things that bring people to suburbs. And you write about Evanston and this epic battle uh, within the community of Evanston. Yeah, walk us through this story. It was amusing because this could have happened almost anywhere in the country. Like, I think the sort of battle that's going on and heartbreaking because at the heart of it is actually a really terrible story about kids who have bad experience in schools and the adults just proving themselves incapable of having a rational conversation about it.
1: Evanston is like, uh, you know, it's a college town. It's, uh, you know, Northwestern is right there. Um, It's just north of Chicago. It's right on Lake Michigan. It's beautiful. You know, there's this kind of like joke Sort of, uh, that, you know, people, particularly the white people in Evanston, call it Evanston. You know, and it's the old growth trees and the wide streets and the beautiful homes and all this. And it, it's a lovely community in many ways. And so part of what drew me there was that they had this 50, 60 year history of real commitment to racial balance in schools and to desegregation. And so, you know, part of what the book does is dive into that history from, particularly from the 1960s, and see these really kind of amazingly progressive, as you know, even for now they'd be considered progressive things that the school district there was doing to integrated schools. So not just kind of moving kids around and having the the numbers kind of shake out, but really trying to do this, um, you know, racial literacy training in the 60s, like trying to teach white teachers, what black power movement meant and how to kind of incorporate that, how to become familiar with that. And so there's this 50 year history of this. And so I went to Evanston thinking, okay, here's a place that's been working on this for a long time. There can kind of be kind of a model for other suburban communities. But I was kind of, again, disabused of my own kind of myths and misconceptions really quickly. So I met a a, a mom there named Lauren Adesina. She's a multiracial mom. She had grown up there, went away to Chicago and then came back largely to raise her son there because she wanted him to be safe and nurtured and be in this kind of safe environment with all these great schools. And so what happened for Lauren was her son hit first grade and already in first grade, he was being called racial slurs in school. And so it was a moment where, you know, this was a community that was very politically active, very involved, but had this history of kind of sweeping those incidents under the rug because they were so proud of their diversity and so proud of being Heavenston that, you know, they didn't really kind of address these kind of root causes and these moments that would come up. And so you know by 2018 2019 the there's a a critical mass of parents in that community primarily progressive parents and parents of color who are saying no more we're not going to let my kid be called these names in school anymore we're not going to let that be swept under the rug and so they become lauren joins this group of parent activists to become very active not just in the town but in the school board they essentially gain control of the school board and they say, we're going to make not just racial balance in the schools and feel good diversity, but real racial equity, the front and center you know, heart of what we do in the school district. And that starts changing everything. You know, they start changing budgeting policies. They oust the superintendent, bring in a new superintendent. Um, no more advanced math classes that allow some kids to get kind of way ahead. They start detracking, you know, all of these kind of changes. Like they have these Pioneer Day celebrations that they've been doing for decades in Evanston schools. And all of a sudden schools start canceling them. Like, no, we are not going to celebrate the settler colonialists anymore. We'll do Indigenous Peoples Day. You know, like all of these kinds of, you know, changes start happening and there's this really intense backlash. And it's a backlash, not from the, I mean, it is from the right. You see Fox News getting a hold of Evanston headlines and kind of really running with them and a lot of hate stuff coming forth, but also from liberal, middle-class, predominantly white families in Evanston who say, wait a second, we're going too far here you're going too far, you're missing the ball and all of these other things. And so it ends up being this real clash between progressive parents of color and more kind of older liberal white families around what the direction of the school district should be. And we see that in these local politics around schools, but also it really closely mirrors what we're seeing in the run-up to 2024.
0: Yeah, and I really implore people in our audience to go read this chapter in particular because, you know, you've used the word Rorschach test in this book, and I think you actually use it in this chapter and and we'll get to the context in which you use it because I think it's really interesting. As I read this chapter, I I was sympathetic to a lot of people involved. Like I I was obviously reading about this parent and and what her child had to go through, horrible. I'm reading people who look at things like white fragility and groups by race and things like that, if I read that correctly. And I'm like, ah, that doesn't pedagogically sound, I don't love that book and I don't think that that's a great way to teach what we want to teach kids. And I like advanced classes, especially the older kids get. I think tracking kids early, like we do in New York City, when we call it a preschooler gifted is absurd. But like as you get older, I do think that's important. So I, I'm left thinking, ah, like, this is important conversations, and it's not exactly happening in the way it should. And I think nothing explains this better than the reaction to this, this Stanford professor who comes in with data that you call a Rorschach test. Talk about what this data said, and then how this became yet another uh, reason for people to kind of tear each other apart within this community?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a, you know, it's an important one because, you know, and I agree with you, like I came away from Evanston feeling like um, there's a lot of well-intentioned people here whose hearts are in the right place, who are trying to make really difficult decisions. And this stuff is really hard. And if it was easy, places like Evanston would do it and figure it out. Um so what happened was um in 2017 there's this guy named Sean Reardon who's like a you know a major major figure in education research and he's been doing this research for years where he takes you know he has like I think it's like test score, standardized test scores of like 40 million kids over this extended period and is able to do these really really robust analyses on this looking at achievement gaps and opportunity gaps So he comes to Evanston to present his research. And basically what he tells them is we have one of, you and Evanston here have one of the largest um, educational achievement gaps by race in the country. White students are dramatically outperforming black students by four grade levels by the time you get to eighth grade. Um, So it's a big, big gap. But what becomes this kind of, you know, open to interpretation around that is the cause and nature of the gap. And then what you do about it based on how you perceive the cause and nature. So, you know, Reardon essentially says, hey, we really think this is a result of class differences. So it's starting early. By the time kids start taking these tests, the gaps are already there. Kids are coming into the system with these kind of different experiences. And he kind of points out like, hey, the black kids in Evanston aren't really doing, you know, they're really doing quite well, especially if you compare them to other black students in other parts of the country. Where they're not doing well is compared to white students in Evanston. And the reason they're not doing well compared to white students in Evanston is not because black kids are doing so bad, it's because white kids in Evanston are doing better than kids anywhere in the country, literally, like it's the best school system in the country for that public school system. And so, you know, that becomes a sense of like, okay, well, you know, how are we, what, what's the root of the problem here? And so the more kind of traditional kind of liberal side says, okay, what we really need to do, like the problem is these kind of class differences and access to early childhood, high quality early childhood education opportunities And, you know, essentially, the implicit notion in there is that the problem lies with families and communities, and we need to invest and help and repair those families and communities. And that can look like investment in early childhood education, which became a big focus uh, in Evanston for the liberal community. But the progressives end up saying, no, 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 wait, you are misdiagnosing this. Because if you look at it, you know, they kind of zeroed in on this one slide that Sean Reardon had presented. And it basically says it looks at the achievement gap in relation to the economic gap. And so Evanston, you know, it's actually a middle class community for for black families, too. And so, there, you know, the, the economic gaps aren't that profound, but the achievement gaps are still really profound. And so what, you know, the school board chair um, and many of the progressive parent activists say is, no, what's actually happening is this school system is exacerbating and worsening these racial differences and problems. And we see that from top to bottom. And so they use the language of like, it's no longer technical changes that we need, you know, kind of just tweaking little policies around the edges, invest a little more in literacy here and math there. We really need to rethink things top to bottom. And, you know, I think it's a, lot, it's a thing that, you know, is hard for a lot of people of my generation and my, you know, ilk to hear. But the school board chair there at the time, a woman named Anya Tanya put it in a way that was like, oh, I see what you're saying. She said, if we had gone to this meeting, and Sean Reard had presented this information, and he said the girls in Evanston are four grades behind the boys in Evanston. And that starts early and gets worse as you go. The community would not sit here and say, this is so great for our boys. We're so happy. How can we, you know, give some extra resources to the girls? They'd say, this is fundamentally unacceptable. We have to change it now. And so that was kind of this tension that ended up really kind of um, just kind of tearing the community apart.
0: Yeah, you have a line in there. You know, I used to work for Obama and I was in the charter school movement as a charter school principal. so I, I'm definitely branded as a technocrat. And you had this line that was basically about how these fights are playing out as Obama transitions to Trump and people start to lose faith in technocratic solutions. And that resonates with me because the you know, throughout the Obama administration and I spent the second part of the Obama administration, I left the administration and went down to Nashville, Tennessee to start a charter school in North Nashville. And I I think there was a particular brand of movement technocratic thinking at that point, where it was like we are called upon to improve the lives of uh the less well off in measurable ways, right? And say, all right, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come up with goals, we're gonna come out with concrete plans, we're gonna execute those plans and we're gonna measure it and then we're gonna celebrate the progress. And I still believe in that. And I think a lot of things Shook that foundation and shook the public's, basically made, made the public disillusioned with that kind of thinking and and talk. And on the one hand, as I read things like this, I'm sympathetic to people's skepticism of that way of thinking. But on the other hand, I think the onus is on the people who want that dramatic change to describe what that's going to look like and prove that that is actually a positive future. Because I think what what the Evanston families were looking at is like, huh. This thing that's going on right now, I could see what this looks like. But what the world looks like with a dramatic change, I'm not sure. And you know, if you look around the country, there are examples like the San Francisco school board or whatever who kind of go down these paths and then at the end of it, nobody's happy. (laughs) You know, the progressives or the liberals.
1: Yeah, I think part of the challenge there, and it's, it's a great analysis of it. And I think part of the there's two things, and school why schools are really central to this. So one is like I you know really uh, you know very grateful to all of the families in the book, including Lauren Addison and Evanston, who really kind of like opened up not just to me but publicly. Like she was testifying at school board meetings about the trauma that her family had endured with her you know young son being called racial slurs. And it's like there's a place at which it's just like that is like. The record has to skip and stop, and we have to just stop and acknowledge that this stuff not only is still happening, but is still causing tremendous, tremendous damage. And so part of what I think was really great about Evanston was you know, this energy to be able to say, we are not going to just kind of keep sweeping this stuff under the rug and go along with this. We are going to stop and acknowledge the pain and the hurt and the disappointment here and see what we can do. And so, th- but there's also this kind of question, you know, in my mind, kind of what I walk away with a little bit of the difference between diagnosis and prescription. And so I think in many ways, the progressives in in Evanston, and we see this nationally as well, I think in many ways are accurately diagnosing the problem. And like, I go back to this history of desegregation in Evanston, like it was done on the backs of the historic black community in Evanston. So the way schools were were desegregated was they closed the neighborhood school in the black part of town and sent those kids out to other schools in predominantly white parts of town. And so there were some benefits to that and a lot of good that came from that, but also it really hurt that community. And when you see, you know, the, the 50 years down the road, when you see, okay, we've really made a sacrifice as a community to lose one of our core institutions, to lose a lot of jobs, to lose this kind of community hub and, that keeps our community intact, and our kids are still four grades behind the white kids, like, why are we doing this? And so there was this moment of real reckoning in Evanston that I think we're having nationally as well. But when you get to kind of the prescription part, like, what's the vision and how do we get there? I think that's where it becomes really hard. And so the superintendent in Evanston at the time was someone who just, you know, was very fascinating to me. He's a white man named Paul Gorin and just like, you know, very highly regarded educator, very highly regarded superintendent. And he was, you know, had come in and in many ways was like about as progressive a white superintendent as you are ever going to find. Like he was doing the racial literacy training. He was mandating it for all staff. He was detracking. He was doing all of that stuff, but it was never quite enough and he never quite had the personal touch to kind of navigate those issues, particularly with Lauren when her son experienced the slurs. But also he really had this deep rooted of belief in that kind of technocratic progress that you were describing. So what he would say was like, listen, you know, I've studied under, you know, he studied at Stanford too under some of the leading education historians in the country. He'd been superintendent or, you know, administrator in other systems. He'd worked at think tanks at foundations. And he was like, schools just don't change, school systems don't just change like that. They're radically decentralized. Teachers have an incredible amount of control over what happens in their in their classrooms, and they're very, you know, um, very sensitive to the whims of local voters and parents and populations. So if you come in and start making big changes, even the best, most well-intentioned ones, you're going to run into all of these both like kind of implementation challenges and these political and social challenges. So he was kind of constantly trying to, to you know, thread that needle and eventually wasn't able to and was forced out. And I think that's something that, you know, the left is really still wrestling with now. Like, how do you balance those things?
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's such an interesting point that I wrestle with a lot as a as a school choice pro- proponent, right, on the, on the left, right? I'm a Democrat who likes school choice he is, uh, the right-wing arguments for school choice are so obvious. Everybody talks about them, they acknowledge them. Um, the right, I think, has a coherent worldview on this. The left is split on this, right? Obama was pro-charter. Biden, not so much. Certain people like Bernie and Warren are now explicitly against them. And it's really fascinating because, and there's new data out about black moms in particular and how they're actually pretty open to school choice. And I think about this, like I think this guy is right, Goran, about how hard it is to make change. I like the, if I were putting points in the favor of, Charter schools, for instance. Now, ESAs is another example of this where I think, and and vouchers where I think it goes even a step further, and Texas, Lovejoy, these types of districts are right at the heart of that debate. But how do you make change really fast? Well, you start new schools, right? But it also shows the challenge with charters because the common argument against charters is they take money out of the school system. Quote unquote, right? Now, people like me who who believe in charters say it's not out of this school system. It's still a part of the system. It's just another, you know, it's another tool in the toolbox. But the smaller the community gets, the higher the stakes get, right? Like in New York, adding another charter is one thing. In Nashville, adding another charter is one thing. In Evanston, uh, or in like Lovejoy, it probably wouldn't happen. But in the Atlanta suburbs, right? Like these are places where every additional school puts a lot of pressure on the existing schools, and the conversation is a lot different than in the cities. And I'm waiting to see, and I know this is happening in some places, uh, I'm waiting to see in some places where the the demographics are flipping. This is happening a little bit in Texas, where some of the biggest opponents of school choice are the rural districts and some of the suburban districts. uh, And some of the biggest proponents are families of color. Uh, This is like a long statement. serve as a question, but did you see the impact of school choice in any of these places yet? Cuz like you you're kind of you reporting overlapped with not just the charter stuff which has been going on for a long time and and rarely really hits non-urban places in in a dramatic way, but when it does it's pretty severe. But also the voucher debate and the ESA debate, which is like even more aggressive in some of these
1: places. Yeah, definitely, for sure. And I think, you know, in some ways, really directly along the lines that you're describing. So in Penn Hills, outside of Pittsburgh, for example, where I grew up, um, there's been a proliferation of charter schools as the district, as Penn Hills public school system has started to struggle. Charter schools proliferated and drew a lot of families away and often middle class black families. And you would have this kind of pattern of middle class black families saying, Why would I want to send my kids to a school? You know, and it's not necessarily like I'm not endorsing this necessarily, but it's like a common sentiment in that area of why would I want to send my kids to a school where there's a growing number of poor, unruly black children and racist white adults? Like it's the worst possible combination. So charter schools really drawing thousands and thousands of families away in a way that really kind of, again, became part of the vortex that Penn Hill School District and the community at large started experiencing because of the funding issues. But the thing I think, you know, you know when I kind of stick, take a step back and think about school choice writ large in suburbia, I kind of see a couple of things. So one, like sometimes I think we undersell the extent to which the residential decision is the first school choice decision. Yes. Like and so Amen, suburbia that. was like school yeah. choice from the beginning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, could like, I pause I like-
0: you on that? Thank you for saying that because I've been having this debate with people on the left forever and I'm like, look, you don't have to believe what I believe, but you believe in school choice too. When Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren send their kids to private schools, or when white affluent progressives move to the suburbs, or anybody, right? As you mentioned, it's not just white affluent progressives. Or even in New York City, you move to the Upper East Side or Upper West Side, or you move one one block in Park Slope so that you could send your kids to PS twenty whatever, which is better than PS thirty whatever. Like that's school choice. Um, we don't call it that. We only call school choice the stuff that's predominantly used by people of color uh, and. And I think that's a flaw. It doesn't mean you have to support the kinds of school choice I, I, I support, but I do think the debate is so limited. Like what we call it feels politicized in the first place.
1: I think that's right. And again, I think it comes back to this idea of we treat suburbia as this kind of like neutral backdrop <laughs> that things just kind of naturally play out and they're not politicized in these way, but it's it like inherently from the very beginning, it's a political and a racial project. And so, and schools are at the center of that. And so I think what we see now is one of the things I actually came away really surprised with is like, I'm surprised there, there weren't more charter schools in a lot of these suburban communities. Like, uh, you know, Gwinnett County or like the Atlanta suburbs, it would seem like a perfect recipe where you have lots of families who are, particularly families of color, who are very dissatisfied, particularly around kind of discipline and school culture issues that their students are, their children are experiencing. And the, like. I can't get my kid into gifted like i she gets straight a's she's the perfect child why won't you just put her in the gifted program like those kinds of things that just be you know kind of add up and so you know you see this kind of restlessness of saying oh, like the robinsons the family that i follow in gwinnett county you know they're uh you know professional family multiple advanced degrees you know they've made this very intentional decision to move into the you know kind of whitest part of gwinnett county farthest north to be in the best schools there but then when they don't work out because of these discipline issues, they're like, okay, well, what are our options? And they start looking at private schools. But then it's like, we're already paying $4,000 in property taxes. So are we are going to pay $12,000 a year for each kid on top of that? And then there's like, okay, well, we could, you know, they actually at one point pull their son out of Gwinnett County Public Schools and sent him back to live with his grandparents in DeKalb County, because there's a, a, in, a in a school system that is predominantly black, where there's black educators and you don't have this cultural mismatch. But his first day there, he sees this kind of like big brawl and he's like, I've never actually seen a real fight before. This is scary. And so he doesn't want to be there either. And so there's just like, there's not like what I heard again and again and again from particularly suburban parents of color, particularly middle-class suburban parents of color was like, A, I've done everything right. But B, even though I've done everything right, why are there still no good options for me?
0: Yeah. And I'll give you my explanation for why I think those schools aren't as prolific in the suburbs. I think one is because of the culture around school choice around 2010, which was like the sort of apex as, you know, Waiting for Superman came out and all that. That's when I entered the work. It's when Race to the Top was passed under the Obama administration, bipartisan consensus. Bush to, you know, Clinton to Bush to Obama. It was just like, you know, bipartisan consensus amongst uh political establishment, and it looked like it was going to go to Jeb Bush instead of Trump, like for a period of time where it just looked like this was going to continue. And 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 the whole narrative around that, KIPP, Teach for America, Building excellent Schools, the movement, Jeffrey Canada was uh, the, it was a movement where we were motivating young Ivy League types uh, and other sort of high flyers to go to the city and solve the achievement gap within the cities. And it wasn't just, it, 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 this is like such a like a weird thing to say, but it just wasn't viewed as cool to go to the suburbs. Uh, and also it, it was hard to find foundation funding to say, all right, I'm going to, because every school, like my first school, in order to start a school, I needed money before I started because you don't get any money until the first student walks through your doors, right? So you need foundation funding. Most of these foundations at the time were not giving grants out to go start a school in the suburbs. Uh, And it was hard to attract teachers, Teach for America and all these other sort of feeders for talent within the schools just weren't going to send people to the suburbs. That's changing. It's changing in part because those people in 2010 who were young 20-something-year-olds are now parents. So they're moving to suburbs, so they want to start schools. The foundations also, um, I think, have realized that they had a political issue with school choice, where the further you went out from cities, the more skepticism you see for school choice. And you see this in Texas, for example, where some of the opposition to more aggressive forms of school choice, like vouchers is coming um, from rural and suburban areas. And I saw that Mississippi too, DeSoto County, I helped pass Mississippi charter law and it was this suburban and, and rural areas, like DeSoto County is kind of a suburb of Mem- Memphis. And that was where the opposition initially came for that bill. So that's kind of why that's the case, it's changing. And, and it'll be interesting to see how that affects the conversation around options.
1: Yeah, and I think part of the challenge it's going to run into is that, you know, it kind of goes back to that, that inherent kind of critique of charters that you talked about earlier, this idea of, you know, a kind of, um, if not pools, resort, you know, you can argue about whether it's directly pulling resources out of the traditional public school system, but what it definitely is doing is, you know, it's, um, kind of fracturing those systems and you start to see them start to splinter and, you know, there's different institutions, there's choices for people. And in some ways, maybe that's a great thing, but I think what you also end up seeing is that the idea that these communities were built around was in some ways, it was a flawed notion of community but it was a real notion of community and schools being at the center of that. And so the idea that everything would work together and schools would help the community thrive dependent on being exclusive. And so that was the fatal flaw from the beginning with the suburban project. And we see that now, You know, it was kind of based on this idea of we're gonna take what we can for ourselves and keep others out. And now that the ability to keep others out is diminished and the ability to just go somewhere new is diminished, it's this sense of like, okay, well, we'll still try and get what we can for ourselves by creating other options and other pieces. And like, that's perfectly understandable and rational for lots of parents. And I you know, can totally understand why the Robinsons, for example, were looking for alternatives for their kid. The problem is that, you know, you have a community, a suburban community that's aging, that's changing fast. That's like kind of being challenged on its original vision trying to adapt, doesn't really have the infrastructure, doesn't really have the money. And then one of its strongest anchors, the public school system is also being kind of splintered and fractured in this way. So like, in terms of what it's going to mean for these communities over the long haul, you know, I think it's, you know, there's reason to worry about that too.
0: Yeah, and I think like we're, I got a lot of charter supporters who listen to this and and I think what we all need to acknowledge is that reality, number one. Like, I think like a lot of times we don't acknowledge the reality. We just pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, and I, and I think in cities, I, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to people who are in big cities because the trade-offs are easier, right? Like for every additional charter that New York City brings in, it's not this crazy shock, shock to the system. And actually, because it's so big and because they're only chartering a certain amount of schools at a time, they have plenty of time to figure out the long-term impacts of those schools. If they are, in fact, really excellent uh, compared to the others because of the way cities like New York work with public transportation and density and all that they can manage that growth. If you're in a place where there's one school, uh, and this is true of the charter world and of the, the voucher ESA world, I do think that decisions to authorize another school, they do for the most part take into account whether that district could withstand the amount of schools that they have. And they should, like charter people should take that into account. They should acknowledge that there are only so many kids that can go to so many schools. And unless in like in some very limited circumstance where the district school is a true disaster that should be shut down, we should be careful about where we go uh, because it could be like a suicide path bringing in another school into some communities.
1: Yeah. And if you want, know I mean, this, I, I love this discussion and I'm thinking about it a lot as we talk and like just stepping back for a minute, like from like a really, really kind of like big picture view. I mean, part of what I ended up you know, kind of coming away from reporting disillusioned with and you know, my time as an education reporter as well is that you know again there's this like inherent tension and tension in every society but i think it's particularly acute in america between doing what's best for mine and yes. you know doing the collective good and like we're 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 generally pretty bad at that and we're especially bad at that in suburbia and you know it's all the reasons of race and class and you know these other issues that kind of get in there and make it like okay we're willing to do the collective good only if that collective is looks a certain way
0: well that's yeah, so, what so, you, you
1: get to this before by the way
0: where I think African-American parents in particular are like, okay, now you're telling me about the collective good. Uh, and then it's also like, I think the idea that they're 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 being stigmatized because of their, their version of school choice, whereas all the other ones are just unassailable,
1: right? I think that's right. And it's, you know, for me, part of it, like, it was why Compton became such like a, a powerful example that really challenged a lot of my notions because again, it's a traditional public school system. It's 20,000 kids. It was one of the worst in California for a long time. They were really, really struggling for a long time. And, you know, I had been hearing this stuff around Compton Turnaround, Compton Turnaround, and I was like, I don't know if I really buy this. Like, I, you know, I'd covered a lot of cheating scandals, a lot of financial scandals. Like, I kind of, you know, remained skeptical of those things. But I spent a lot of time there, um, both at a school level and, you know, with the administration and, you know, kind of digging into the history. And so what I kind of came away with, and it's by no means perfect, but what I kind of came away with was a sense where you now have this district that is 96% black and brown. Um, overwhelmingly Hispanic within that, lots of immigrant families, first and second generation, many kids who are still learning English a lot who have undocumented parents, including the family that I followed, Mexican family, um, undocumented parents, children born on U.S. soil on citizens. And so in many ways, like these are exactly the kids that Compton itself and suburbia writ large was largely designed to exclude. And so now they're there and they're the only ones who are there. And so Compton, part of why it struggled for so long was you had, you know, this kind of generation or two of black leadership who had fought so hard against such brutal kind of discrimination to get control of that town and the jobs and the patronage and the policies that then they turned around and did the same thing to the Latino community as it grew there and say, you know, we're not going to share power. We're going to, you know, kind of keep you out of, uh, you know, teaching jobs, cop jobs, you know, all of these things. But that started to change. And part of what started to change was the superintendent there, this guy named Darren Brawley, who's a black guy, And he came in, and like I tried every which way to get him to talk about these politics and how you deal with, and he was just like, nope, not going to do it, because he knew that he would just like inevitably piss someone off, and it wasn't going to serve his larger agenda. But what he did do, particularly when they got more money into the system, was say, okay, where are the actual, the real needs? And the real needs were the most vulnerable kids, which is not surprising. And a lot of those kids were Hispanic, and they were learning English, and they were newcomers. And he started reallocating resources there. In some ways, he kind of did it quietly so as not to draw a backlash, but he started doing it. And what you ended up seeing was this system that was taking that kind of version of suburban public schools that I benefited from as a kid, where not only were there lots of resources, but there was a sense of, I see you, I see your gifts, I'm going to extend you grace, and I'm going to nurture that and cultivate that. And that was happening in Compton for this child of undocumented parents who was having a chance to do robotics clubs, mock trial competitions, starting class newspaper, doing app challenges, like you name it, he got to do it and imagine himself not just in the future, but shaping the future. And so I walked away from that with the sense of like, okay, conceptually, here we kind of have a model of how do we do this kind of collective good in a way where it's like scarce environment, and scarce resources, and kind of a challenging, you know, policy environment, but do it in a way that's coming from a mindset of how do we extend that same investment into the kids who are in suburbia today.
0: Well, that's a great place to end. And, and you mentioned this place, uh, Jefferson Elementary, uh, which, you know, there was there's so much doom and gloom here, but I think as you mentioned, Compton as a whole, but and Jefferson Elementary, I think leaves listeners and and readers when you go read the book with with hope about what the future can look like. Well, well, thank you, Benjamin. Um, everybody get out there, get this book, "Disillusion: Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. Uh, where else can we find you on the internet, Ben?
1: I'm at uh, benjaminherald.com. It's uh, H-E-R-O-L-D. And on Twitter, X, at Benjamin B. Harold.
0: Well, great work uh, for everybody. Thank you for listening. Remember to rate, review, subscribe. And our voicemail is three two one-two zero 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 five seven zero. Thank you very much, everybody.